0: Hello, and welcome to the Well-Seasoned Librarian Podcast. I'm the Well-Seasoned Librarian, Dean Jones. Today's podcast is Season 1, Episode 9. We're talking with Heather Arndt Anderson. Heather is a Portland, Oregon-based food writer, culinary historian, and botanist, as well as a regular panelist on the podcast, The Four Top. She is the author of Breakfast to History, and also Portland, a Food Biography, as well as numerous other books as well. I enjoyed this conversation very much, and I hope you will too. And onward to the conversation. All right. Welcome to the Well-Seasoned Librarian. Today in conversation with Heather Anderson and I, we're discussing her numerous books on food and her food writing. Hello, Heather. How's it going?
1: It's going pretty hot here in Portland today. It's uh, We're in the end of the heat dome or as, as I've been calling it the hunkering heat dome 2021, the hunkering. Yeah. We're having record breaking uh, heat wave right now that will mercifully end this evening when we get some um, inland breeze from the, the coast. Finally.
0: Thank God I've had a lot of friends that live up there and they're all been talking about how horrible it's been.
1: Yeah. Most of us don't have air conditioning because you know, a lot of, People will just wait out the you know couple days of, of the year that it gets over hundred, but when it's sustained for a few days and it's you know people just aren't prepared, it's too hot.
0: <laughs> Does it affect gardening at all? Because I know that in my garden, I've had some scorched peppers and stuff like that. Is that affecting yeah. your garden?
1: Um, yeah, so I've been doing a really long like two hour um, deep soaks in the morning. Um, my front garden though, yeah, I'm already seeing a lot of heat stress. Um, all my containers are pretty heat stressed. Um, I did also already see, um, some of my tomatoes showing blossom end rot from just getting so hot, the fluctuating temperatures and the, the uneven watering. So yeah, I expect some casualties. Um, I'm hoping that things can bounce back because I do have pretty strong plants and I keep them pretty watered. So fingers crossed.
0: um, I've loved your books. Um, I've read basically I think everything I can on you that you have out currently and I really love your writing. Um, I wanted to ask you about your writing style because I like to read a lot of different things and one thing I really enjoy is when a writer can deal with a topic that might be dry to some people and add some character and some charm to it. Uh, One author I like to read is a Mary Roach, she writes a lot about different topics, but she adds a lot of humor and kind of, she has her own voice. And you have a definite narrative voice I've noticed that's very strong. Like, I think that like, your books would be perfect in many ways for somebody to read as an audiobook, because they have a really nice flow and they have a good kind of personality to them, which not everybody has. I've read many books that are, are on various topics, even food for instance, where it's, if somebody had to read it, it'd be difficult. Like you mm-hmm. you'd need to be like a really good thespian to add, but your books aren't like that. So like your book on berries, for instance, um, a global history um, on berries, berries, a global history, sorry. And your book, Chili is a global history. Um, they have a combination of information, science, and then there's some mythology and stuff in there and like cultural history. Was that an intention? Was that like just the way you like to write? Or did you think like, this is how I'm going to do it when you wrote them?
1: Well, I think that it's important when we are discussing single topics, and um, in this case, it's a part of a series, the Edible series by Reaction Books, and so each book is only one ingredient or one topic. Um, I think that when you're dealing with a single subject, it's important to provide some cultural context. Otherwise, it's just a botany book. And actually, when I pitched the Chili's book, they said that they would have um, accepted it either for the edible series or for their botany series, just because my background being in botany m- meant that I could approach the topic from different angles and so part of it is that yeah, I, I was I wanted to flex a little bit that you know I have some knowledge in life sciences, but I think that when you 're dealing with a subjects uh, such as chilies or berries in um, both in cases they um, it 's hard to really um, it's hard to define what these foods can mean to people around the world when we're talking like a global history without bringing in the culture of that is behind the the diet and the food itself. Um, And I think that food is the most interesting way to study culture, you know, for me, it's, I much prefer studying culture through its food than through its wars or, you know, it's tragedy. Um,
0: I totally agree.
1: But then, yeah, I mean, as far as like my writing style goes, I uh, began writing as a blogger and it was mostly just, you know, me kind of goofing around about what I'd been cooking or eating and um, using a conversational style was just what came naturally to me and made it easier to get my thoughts down on paper without being paralyzed by the fear that I wasn't a good writer or whatever. It's was like, I, I enjoy talking about these things. And so I can just type the words instead of saying them out loud. And hopefully um, it makes my voice clear. And that's one of the things that I have heard about my writing is that I have a clear voice. And I think it's just because it sounds like somebody talking. It's basically what it is, somebody talking.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I know that not all writers can pull it off well, and you do, you pull it off very well. And uh, it's very engaging and nice. I read a book on uh, cannibalism and biology in the animal kingdom last year. And that's not something that normally lend itself to humor, but the I the author tried to put some humor in and it kind of it were like, dude, no. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Tough crowd. <Yeah. laughs> Everyone's a critic, Dean. Yeah. Um, yeah, not everyone can stick the, the humor. And actually, you know, in um when I was reading a, a a review of my book Portland a food biography the review that appeared in Oregon Historical Quarterly um, which had been written by an academic he you know he did kind of crit- critique some of my jokes so uh, i know that i didn't land them all either but you know i want and these are you know can be very dry topics i want them to be entertaining to read and i want the the information to be engaging because this is stuff that i'm super interested in and if i can't convey my enthusiasm about the, the subject then i have no business writing about it
0: I like that. Your book on breakfast was a wonderful surprise. And not only that it was it informative and it talked about breakfast, but I found in many parts of it, the historical parts were very interesting to me that I had not seen in a lot of other books. I mean, oftentimes it's just a regurgitation of information, but you added a really interesting social kind of context to it. And so I wanted to ask you about your research for the book and what did you learn? What was surprising to you when you did the research for the book?
1: Well, I was relieved to learn that so much information is really available. Um, on Google Books because so many libraries around the world have digitized their collections and uh, particularly older materials that I normally would have had to make an interlibrary loan to get access to and it would have been really time consuming and required a lot of heavy lifting. Um, So having access to so much information on the internet has been such a boon and at the time I wrote that book my son was just two years old and so he was working during his nap times Um, that was when I wrote that book and so having the luxury of being able to stay home to do so much of my research was, um, it really made the project Doable. I wouldn't have been able to complete the book at that time um, if it hadn't been for that easy access to information, and then being part of such a good library system here in Portland, the Multnomah County Library System is outstanding. So I've got free access to JSTOR for research without having to have an academic account. Um, I have access to all of the newspaper archives for the state of Oregon. And then of course, you know, globally you can get access to things like um, menus from the New York Public Library. They have hundreds if not thousands digitized. And so I just thank goodness for the information age um, that it really enables people to become scholars from their own home. And you know, I did have the guidance of, of actual you know, academic food science or food culture um, professors that helped kind of point me in the right direction if I was getting stumped on something. But I think that approaching the topic as a bit of an outsider to food culture, um, scholarly topics, um, hopefully helped make the books more accessible to readers. Um, They were supposed to be written for a general audience anyways. So even though they're being used as texts for college courses, I wanted anybody to be able to just like pick up the book and learn something and maybe, you know, be entertained along the way.
0: Now, breakfast as we know it, with eggs, flapjacks and bacon is a thing that we see in media quite a bit, in movies, uh, TV shows, but it's not the standard like template we've always had for breakfast. And there really has maybe not been as a standard template in many ways. Uh, So tell us about how, breakfast has evolved over, say, the past hundred years?
1: Oh, well, over the past hundred years, I would say that the biggest changes um, have been not to what it is that we eat, but um, the format. So, you know, the advent of breakfast cereal, of course, is like probably the biggest game changer. Um, Things that, you know, foods that are sort of more ready-made further along in the process of, um, of being, you know, processed. So, um, yeah. Oh, and I'm taking breakfast through the fast food lens. That's a big change. Um, and diners, 24 hour diners. I, yeah. So over the last hundred years, all of the foods that we eat are mostly the same. In fact, you no know, diners still serve the same stuff that would have been seen on the breakfast buffet tables of wealthy Victorians. But what average working class Americans have access to is, you know, still very close to what people ate 100 years ago. But yeah, like box cereals, foods that children can prepare for themselves. Um, those are the biggest, um, like new developments over the past 100 years. Um, I think that having more access to global breakfast foods has been a change too. And you know, I think of mexican and um central american food is being american food too so you know breakfast tacos and breakfast burritos yeah. being so common um you know those i think were probably always part of the american diet just you know not as widespread as it is now um and then the breakfast sandwiches you know those have been around for you know a century, century and a half. Um, but, uh, and even to go breakfast sandwiches were, have been around since Victorian days. So it's, yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting to see how much, um, the more things change, the more they stay the same. The
0: one part of uh, your book on breakfast that I like was touching on how it affects pop culture. And you mentioned um, its relevance in Twin Peaks in the mm-hmm. movie Breakfast Club and then Sex and the City which i always loved watching i i've always loved watching Sex and the City and i just enjoyed so much their little breakfast dates they had and i just thought it was so so fun so uh, do you want to talk about it, bre- the breakfast effect on pop culture at all and touch on that yeah.
1: Um, yeah i think you know with Sex and the City i think they're mostly at brunch which is yeah, a yeah. decidedly sassier meal than breakfast breakfast yeah. is wholesome Brunches for sassy broads who were out drinking and having sex the night before, and want to share their sordid tales of what they'd been up to. Um, so I think that you know the breakfast table has been used really effectively. I mean, I wouldn't even say it's been effective. I'd say it's a trope. It is a trope to convey, you know, a sense of family and normalcy. And um, one of my favorite uses of breakfast in, um, in pop culture and in media in general has been in um, the series Breaking Bad as a way to kind of show viewers that no matter how far off the deep end walter white is getting with his like <laughs> drug manufactory, he still you know made breakfast for his family and that like kind of showed that he still had a moral compass and um the foods that you know and it's the same like pancakes bacon and eggs that's like the foods that dads always can cook when it's dad's turn to cook yeah. and it's, so it's really used in a way to just kind of like wallpaper a scene with wholesome family values and, um, and also to give men a chance to be in the kitchen without jeopardizing their masculinity, which is the other thing that I, besides barbecuing, the only meal a dad or a man is allowed to cook without being, you know, miscast um, is yeah. Breakfast. It's like a heroic meal to prepare.
0: Yeah. Now that was the case with my own father. He would always, uh, completely ossify the bacon every time he got a chance to get a chance (laughs) to cook it. Now, as an older uh, Gen Xer, I've seen the gamut of breakfast cereal in America as it's uh, progressed through the 60s, 70s, and 80s onward. Um, You touched on breakfast cereal and how it's evolved in your book. Um, What can you tell us about breakfast cereal and its kind of change over a course of time and how it's affected um, pop culture in general?
1: well cereal breakfast cereal was the first uh food that was sort of marketed directly toward children um and using children to like as a direct line to the mom's wallet and so i think that once breakfast cereal companies or just cereal companies in general realized that kids were the golden ticket to that fat paycheck that you know the the colors, the, the sugar levels, um, the mascots all became singularly targeted toward kids and so kids desires began to really just direct the course of cereal and then the kind of like back to the land, you know, post um, Mid century, like the 60s, late 50s, well, yeah, 60s and 70s, when there was the kind of like backlash to all the sugary, like unhealthy cereals. And then, you know, so like granola and grape nuts and muesli, I almost said mueslix, um, muesli, all of those like hippie, kind of more wholesome, nutritious, whole foods type cereals. Um, those, are kind of, I mean, they have just as much sugar and fat as the other stuff. It's just, you can identify the oats and the nuts or whatever. Yeah. Um, but seeing how they kind of cereals are always sort of have their little fingers on the pulse of, of what's going on culturally. And, you know, I also grew up with breakfast cereal being, um, a middle gen X aged person, um, A lot of that same sugary cereal that you probably ate. We always had the generic version, though, because my family was poor. My mom would get like the big bags of it.
0: Yeah, we too. Yeah, we did that too.
1: Rises and those (laughs) pillowcases of Cheerios. Um, And I think that what's happening now with so much more attention on food um, sensitivities or, you know, ingredients and allergies, um, gluten and, peanuts, you know, those food allergies are much more either widespread or just being more self-diagnosed. I think that we're seeing this kind of funny um, crossroads of like the hippie cereals of the sixties and seventies and the kids cereals that, you know, the nostalgia is another super strong driver of marketing. So that you get this marriage of like, "Quote unquote healthy cereal" or like cereals being made by more um, like wellness-based food companies, but still have the sugary mascot edge that kids want. And so, when I think of stuff like Barbara's Puffins, which are you know pretty, you know hippie mom generic, you know, that's the, the, the basic cereal that every hippie mom gets her kid. Well, they have the chocolate and peanut butter flavored ones, just like the ET cereal we had when we were kids. Yeah. And so kids today are getting like to dip their toe into their like Gen X parents' nostalgia, but are still kind of being forced to eat the healthy stuff that, you know, our grandparents probably should have been feeding to our parents.
0: I um, have seen recent articles online um by people uh, pining for the days of the cereal prize. And Mm -hmm. one thing they mentioned was, and I had forgotten about this, was the records that were on the inside of the box that you cut out.
1: They were playable. Yeah, Yeah. and you like peel them off. Um, Yeah, I've seen the ones that you peel off and then yeah, the ones that you literally cut out. Yeah, yeah, I think there was one, um, the Jackson Five had a little record.
0: (laughs) You were very cool if you had that.
1: Oh yeah, definitely with your little Fisher Price record player that was like a little tiny suitcase yeah that was oh yeah that was that was um, the real stuff
0: what is your favorite breakfast what do you like to make
1: i um people when people ask me this question it usually depends on the day but i think i still prefer like soup like a nice spicy noodle soup i usually don't eat first thing in the morning i've never really been a breakfast eating person I like to be up for a few hours and let my stomach warm up on its own with coffee. It used to be back in the old, you know, old days, I would just have a few cigarettes and a cup of coffee to get me through the morning. And I don't smoke anymore, of course, since I'm a, parent. I'm a responsible mother. Um, but I, yeah, I still just drink coffee for breakfast and then I have my first actual meal of the day, usually at like ten thirty or 11 after I've had some exercise, but yeah, I, I usually go for like a bowl of bean stew or spicy noodle soup or something like that. Like a good kimchi stew. I just really like a big bowl of something warm and spicy. That's
0: nice. And I, you know, I think a lot of people like that. I know that going through Chinatown in San Francisco, a lot of places offered soup mm-hmm. uh, in addition to like uh, rice porridge. And that's mm-hmm. something you could always get there as well. So I think a lot of people share that with you.
1: Yeah. I mean, pho is a breakfast food. Um, yeah. And you know, like full from Egypt, you know, just a big bowl of fava bean stew. I think it's really common for people to eat um, something brothy or something really like stewy.
0: I've never had that for breakfast, but that sounds like that'd be really nice actually now that I think about it. Yeah. Um, and now we'll go to a word from our sponsor. And now back to our interview, your book on berries. Um, I wanted to ask about how berries have changed, like in the public landscape, because when I was young, you know, if you could, you could get strawberries, of course, and raspberries, and I think occasionally seasonally blackberries, unless they were frozen. But now I think you could find all kinds of berries in the store. Like you could actually get gooseberries at the store, which you couldn't get before. And, uh, I've seen currants in the store. And then, of course, we have exotic berries from all over the world now that are being touted as health, uh, health benefits. Mm-hmm. So what have you seen change over time and, and from the studies in your book as far as our perceptions of berries and, and like what is acceptable as far as berries go to distribute to the public and also um, what is and what isn't a berry?
1: That's a lot of questions. So sorry, the sorry, first yeah. thing, it's okay. The, what is a, technically a berry is any um, fruit that has many seeds inside the middle and is sort of held in place by a thin, like a skin. So um, the banana is technically a berry, it's a leathery type of berry. Cucumbers and melons and pumpkins are all berries. Um, I think pretty much all nightshades, some potatoes, the potato berry, not the, the tuber. Um, tomatoes, eggplants, peppers are all berries. And then of the fruits that we think of as berries um, that are true berries botanically, we have currants and um, all of the vaccinia. So like uh, blueberries, huckleberries, cranberries, those are all true berries. Um, strawberries are not a real berry. They're an, aggr- an aggregate fruit, I think, or no, an accessory I can't remember the, the the fruits itself are the little the seeds on the outside but the rest of it is just a swollen receptacle and blackberries and raspberries are an, um, an aggregate fruit um uh, i think they're like a an aggregate of droplets is the botanical term um so you i think that people kind of know and like um the fruit growers Consider any of the small fruits to be like the berries fall under small fruits, and so that's like sort of how they lump everything together. Yeah. Um. I think that you know one of the big challenges of berries, and it's one of the reasons why most uh, berries produced in Oregon are sold as frozen or processed as a sauce because they are not very shippable. When they're they're picked to the peak of ripeness, yeah. They cannot. They've got a two day shelf life. And that's pretty much it, unless you freeze them, and then they're wonderful. And you know you can buy frozen Oregon-grown Marionberries year-round. And when you open the bag, it smells just like you were standing you know, in a berry patch. Um, strawberries and blackberries and blueberries um, that are really commercially produced for year round fresh markets um, are almost all grown in Northern um, or in like higher uh, elevations in Mexico by Driscoll's. Um, and Driscoll's has done a lot of work um, on strawberry breeding as well, but theirs are mostly for shippability. Whereas in Oregon, I know Oregon State University's extension service is really more focused on um, just the Flavor, because they know like it's gonna, it's not gonna be a fresh market product, and so um, the berry trials that I've been to as a T- I do professional taste testing as a fun like side gig um, for Oregon State University's uh, Food Innovation Center, and yeah, one of the taste tests I did was strawberries, and they all they want to know is like, what do you think about the color, the fragrance, the you know the sweetness and the acidity? They're not asking you questions about how like long you think it was going to last. Um, so yeah, I think that. The types of berries that we have available now has definitely increased with the knowledge or like the increasing research that shows that uh, berries are high in antioxidants and that those phytochemicals can be important um, cancer fighting agents. And So like the whole nutraceuticals thing um, where food is being more prescriptive for health benefits and less just about your diet, you know that new research that's been emerging is driving the market for you know the wellness community especially um, for people to want different kinds of berries and you know be- berries that we didn't always have access to like goji berries you, s- you know you used to only right. be able to them dry at asian grocery stores because they're you know important part of traditional chinese medicine And used in hot pots and stuff, but not a snacky thing. Um, And acai berries too, you know, those were not really available until like maybe the last 10 years or so. And it's all just because of new evidence shows that it's really good for you. And so that um, really drives the availability, the production.
0: Yeah, I've seen like, ever since they've talked about the antioxidant benefits, I've seen You know, there's blueberries in everything now and like Mm -hmm. all kinds of berries I could find. Like, I don't think I ever saw in my entire life a mulberry in the store. And then I suddenly saw them dried. You could buy them by the bag. They're like 20 bucks. And it's like...
1: Um, mulberries are really good. I love them. (laughs) I mean, um, sea buckthorn is another one that's, um, really big in Germany. Yeah. They're, um, they're kind of yellow gold. They're used in juice, but yeah, in Germany is they're really huge. It's like a health craze thing. Um, but yeah, mulberries most of the time I, if I get them in preserves, um, from Russian grocery stores, um, I think they're produced in Armenia, but yeah, it's just such delicious preserve. It's almost like like a sweeter and less crunchy fig almost it was like the most yeah. delicious I love it
0: I um now I, I lived in the Northwest up in Washington and we used to go berry picking a lot
1: mm-hmm.
0: now in Oregon I know you guys have a lot of access to a lot of berries Do you go berry picking up there in Oregon?
1: Well, I have friends who go to U pick farms all the time. I grow blackberries when we first moved to this house the garden space was mostly just kind of rangy rose bushes that were really thorny and the, the flowers were not very scented, so it was like the worst of both worlds for a rose bush. So I ripped them all out and I put in thornless blackberries. So I grow, I have like six different plants of um, the Chester variety um, thornless blackberries, and they produce fruits that are you know like two inches across. I mean, they're like wow, very, that's big. big blackberries. And then I grow thornless loganberries as well. Um, mm. so yeah, I tried, I was growing strawberries for a while, but you have to replant them every other year, and squirrels. Yeah really steal a lot of them so um i just kind of gave up on those i do enough blackberries to put up about uh, two cases of jam so yeah I, i can do you know like 24 pints of jam and then just freeze the rest for snacking on or baking with
0: do you have any uh huckleberries in your area
1: yeah, so I don't have them in my yard because, again, um, the vaccinia prefer cooler temperatures, and my vegetable yeah. beds are um, on the south side of the house. It's really hot over there. Um, but yeah, from Portland, Oregon, if you drive for like 45 minutes up to Mount Hood, you know, you're in peak um, huckleberry picking patches, and those are the patches that were used historically by you know Columbia River Native people for tens of thousands of years. And um, they would have these wonderful summer trips uh, to escape the heat, just go up to the mountains. The women would just go up there and pack all the huckleberries um, into baskets and bring them down to make them the big cakes for storage, um, like f- f- dried fruit leather cakes, not, not the kind with the flour. Um, so yeah, we have huckleberries here. We grow really good blueberries. Um, all of the vaccinia-like our acidic soils. Our soils are volcanic. And so um, it really drives what kind of plants can grow well here.
0: I um, got to pick h- huckleberries in California, weirdly. They don't have them here in the Bay Area. But if you go down below the Bay Area, below Santa Cruz, there's an area that's small that has them. And I remember we labored for hours picking them one at a time. Mm-hmm. And we got this like small container which I I ended up making jam with them with peaches to kind of bulk it out Mm -hmm. and uh, a friend of mine I was telling her her about it and she just laughed and laughed she goes you you boob you have to put a a sheet on the ground and shake it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah the Native American women here used um, a tool they made out of a salmon spine so it was just the little the, the bones you know sticking out like a fork basically or like a comb and they would just rake that um, and it was attached to like a cone-shaped basket so they would just like rake the berries right into the basket
0: that's brilliant I love that it's so
1: much more efficient I grow a couple of little red currant bushes in my backyard and uh, yeah it's just such fiddly work picking one at a time um, yeah. So I get like my one pint of berries that I labored over for like a half hour. I bake one little cake and I'm like, why do I even grow these things? I like, <laughs> let the rest of them rot on the bush. Like the birds have them. I don't even, it's just not worth my time. The birds like them though. It's they start to ferment on the bush the cedar wax swings like to come and get drunk off of them it's really funny and i like elderberries as well i um i love i just i love elder bushes i use the flowers as um as well to make syrups and things but yes yeah, so i have about four or five elderberry bushes that that put out a lot of fruit too oh, yeah
0: elderberry cordial i've heard is uh, yeah the, I the, make flou- the flower yeah
1: The elderflower cordial, and then I also make elderberry um, cordial just with vodka and sugar to use as a cough syrup.
0: Nice. Now, um, I've seen throughout my lifetime um, an increase in the uh, consumption and purchasing of uh, spicy foods. Uh, I remember, like, I grew up in a household where both sides were from the south, so there's always some kind of jar of uh, vinegar, a mm-hmm. bottle of vinegar with peppers in it on the table. And we always had Tabasco and stuff. And then, you know, we always had like, you know, Mexican food with chilies in it and stuff like that. But I, I've seen stuff, you know, increase over time where now, like I said, we had the uh, the Doritos with a ghost pepper and stuff right. like that. These yeah, weird ux, exotic peppers from all over the world. And in your book on chilies, you know, you talk about how it's changed through time and, and culture and, and our concept of, of peppers. Do you want to talk about that a little bit?
1: Sure. I think, um, you know, since chilies are an American crop, they're a new world food, you know, people who lived in the chili growing regions of um, North America, Central and South America, you know, it was always just part of their their normal diet and didn't integrate really with um, the white North American culture um until pretty late you know i think that texans and people in the southwest and southeast um did enjoy chilies too but i don't think that it became as widespread where salsa you know was at the, the you know usurping ketchup as the most popular um condiment in america until the 60s or 70s and one thing that i read that i thought was pretty interesting um was how when soldiers and GIs were returning from the Vietnam war, they had developed a taste for spicy food, you know, in Thailand and Vietnam and returned um, to the U S with that like new found love of spicy food. And that's what started um, increasing its availability besides just Mexican food and uh, made it more commonplace for white people, white dudes in particular to, um, to embrace the chili. I do think that there are some components of, um, you know, white supremacy to it. Um, because I think that a lot of times white people see like liking spicy food as sort of conquering another culture in a way. Like if you can handle the spiciness, that means that you're a certain type of person instead of just a person who grew up eating spicy food or whatever (laughs) you know, like. Yeah. And, um, So, yeah, I'm not sure. That's a a topic that I would love to unpack more um, through more research. Um, But I do think that, you you know, of my friends who are hot sauce makers, I have friends who are women who are hot sauce makers, and they don't feel very welcome at some of the hot sauce expos and those (coughs) like really eating competitions and stuff because it's mostly just bro white guys.
0: Oh my God. Um,
1: trying to one-up each other with how much spice they can handle. And, you know, meanwhile, I've got these friends who are like making beautiful artisanal salsas that are nuanced and flavorful. And yeah, they have a kick and they're spicy, but it's not all about beating you over the head with Scoville's. Yeah. And I just, I hope that people will catch up to the the art of chili instead of just the the weapon the weaponizing of it
0: well yeah, I mean because chilies are so delicious I don't think you should have it be a punishment or an endurance right. test i mean it's it's food right. you
1: know? well and I think that people do the thrill seeking part of it um, you know it's like going on a roller coaster ride where you know you're probably not going to actually die I mean there it does happen occasionally but you know it's you get to feel unsafe and in danger, but you know you're actually not gonna like get hurt. And that's what's so nice about chili um, and just eating capsaicin is that it feels like an injury to your body and your brain Processes it as an injury, but it actually doesn't damage you. And so your nerves aren't being hurt. It's just your brain's being tricked into thinking that you're being injured. So you get um, kind of a little kick out of that. And the endorphins are real. I mean, that response that your brain has to the perceived threat is still real and it's exhilarating. And so, of course, you know, even if I mean, I'm kind of a, I'm not like a macho chili head, but I do like to have some hot sauce at the table. Just it, it just lives there. And I always sauce my plate separately. My kids catch, he, he likes some spicy food. He's learning to like spicy food, but he doesn't like it as spicy as I do. So, um, yeah, I think that it's just like anything else. I mean, like super duper hoppy beer. I think people start getting into this competitive mindset of like how much you can handle, how strong you can make something before people tap out. And, um, I don't know what, what there is to that <laughs> mentality, but,
0: I don't, I don't, can't remember the hottest thing I've ever ate, but I've never totally, I mean, I, I don't want to like punish myself with something so hot that I can't stand it. But I remember I was in England and I was going to a Chinese takeaway and I got a, uh, it was like a squid with like a black bean sauce and peppers and it was, So hot that I think it killed the cold that I had at the time.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Oh, serious. I always, whenever I feel a first tickle in the back of my throat, I always eat something super spicy with lots of garlic and ginger too, usually. Like, so I love just eating a big bowl of kimchi stew or some like noodle soup with a bunch of chili crisp, just like the oil slick of red chili oil floating on top. It's, it's effective.
0: Oh yeah. Um, Now, do you grow chilies yourself?
1: I do. I don't grow as many as I would like. Um, they don't do as well here. I mean, I could probably just take better care of them. I don't know. I'm not an expert at growing chilies, I, I'm not that experienced, but I do grow a couple of different Korean chilies. And this year I'm growing some purple, heirloomy, fancy ones. Um, but yeah, I usually just grow a couple of like uh, shishito or um, you know, like the little kind of, the, I forgot the Korean word for the same type of pepper. So it's a couple of mild Korean chilies, and then I grow a few spicy Korean chilies. And um, yeah, I'm this year I'm growing some ahi limon. I'm trying to... Last year I grew the, the Sichuan Facing Heaven chilies that, you know, I just, when you get a bag of dried chilies from the supermarket, or my friends were traveling um, to Chengdu and brought me back a bag of dried chilies, I just shook the seeds out of the oh, pods yeah. and just planted them. And yeah, I had like lots of little chili plants from that.
0: That's neat. I like that. And I want to mention, too, that your chili cookbook has some really nice recipes at the end of it. I recommend oh, heartily. You. I haven't made the Kung Pao recipe yet, but I really want to because my, my wife likes Kung Pao chicken. So yeah. I want to make that very soon. Um, how did you come to food writing? What, what, Where did it start for you where you decided to start doing
1: it? Well, I have always enjoyed writing as a hobby. And it's funny when I like look back on my life, a lot of times I was like, why am I doing this? Like I have no business being a writer. I was, like, I always wanted to be a scientist when I grew up and I, that's so what I studied in school and got my degree in biology and worked as a field scientist for 10 years. Um, but then I was doing the, the blog just for fun um, as like a, so a, yeah, a hobby basically. Um, but then after I had my son in 2009, I, you know, had I'd just been a field scientist and I couldn't take my baby with me to whatever, you know, the middle of nowhere, small town hotel room where I'm working out of for that month or whatever that week. I was just doing so much field work and it was gone for so long that I had to And I couldn't, I tried to redirect that part of my career into more project management and um, permitting and more office-based stuff. But there just was so much resistance from my, my supervisors. You know, there was only two other moms in that whole office and they wanted to keep their jobs too. And so since I was, you know, my strengths were... In the field, I was like, well, "This my career's over. Then this is not. You know, there are no moms who are field scientists. It doesn't unless your your partner is also a field scientist, and you guys can just live on the road. Like it's not. So I took my love of writing and blogging. And I had actually gotten a an invitation from Ken Awala who was my editor for Portland and the Breakfast Book. He was doing um, editing of. Food Cultures of the World Encyclopedia, I think five volumes. And he asked if I would like to write the Pacific Northwest chapter. He was just somebody who read my blog and liked it. And so, yeah, I wrote that encyclopedia chapter. And um, then, yeah, like a year, I turned in that assignment the day before I gave birth. So it was like my wow, was holding into like the seamless transition of power from <laughs> one career to the next. Um, so yeah, then he announced on Facebook, I think a year or so later that he was going to be editing a series, um, called the meals. And so I wrote a proposal and pitched to do breakfast, uh, with a sample chapter and everything. And I was, yeah, I was awarded the contract, which is great, but it wasn't like I came up with this brilliant idea to write a breakfast book. It was just part of a series. I auditioned for the job and I got it. And that was that um and then similar story with the portland book they wanted to do a big city food biography series and it's a kind of fight to get Portland um seen as an important enough food city to be included in the series and i still don't know that it's it's been the the lowest performing of my books it's a very niche Hmm. topic Um, but yeah so it's funny because i often feel like wow i just kind of lucked into this new career. But you know, the first piece of food writing I ever did was when I was in fourth grade and I wrote a poem about an orange. And the first time I ever, you know, was paid to write nonfiction was when I was in sixth grade and I, you know, submitted an essay to Archie comics on gerbils and I got first place. So I've kind of been doing this. I just, you know, didn't put two and two together until much later in life that, well, I could actually be a writer full time. And, and that's a real job that I can have. it's okay to be good at more than one thing or to just take one completely out of left field thing and turn it into something else that's completely out of left field so I'm like yeah from field biologist to culinary historian i mean weirder transitions have been made i'm sure
0: i i'm surprised that you're you're saying that your portland book didn't do better because i i read it and i thought it was excellent and not only because i mean i don't know portland very well but now i feel like i do because you know oh. you talk a lot about the history and people that have you know the chefs that have made it you know from there and just there was a lot of good insider info now i'm somebody who i live in the bay area but i'm not from here and i like to read stuff about the bay area because it kind of makes me feel like i'm part plugged into it and part of it so you say that it didn't like
1: it didn't sell that many copies is what i mean mean, it it was well received and it's been pretty well reviewed it's just that you know portland's not a huge place i wouldn't say that you know everybody who bought it is from Portland or lives in Portland. But, um, yeah, it's mostly been embraced by people who are interested in learning more about, um, the first foods of the area, like people, the way people ate pre-European settlement, because I did do a lot of research on, um, the, not just the work of ethnographers who were interested in what weapons and tools people were using, but the, the early botanists of the area were really interested in what kind of plants women were using and so like those types of things and like my background with natural history and um that kind of research felt like a really like comfortable place for me to kind of spread out my roots a little bit as a writer but um so yeah I mean it's I'm glad and you know it's also sad to see just since that book was published how much has changed you know which restaurants have already closed down you know um yeah, the last year's been awful. The pandemic too. I mean, we had quite a few just closures that would just happen randomly. A lot of development um happening out here and a lot of speeding towards the future and not enough respect for the past.
0: Your um history portions of the book are really solid. Has it made you want to write anything else on history or any kind of other, do you have any other historical books coming out in the future because I think you do a really good job with it. You seem to have a real knack for it. I almost would be, I mean, if you told me you you have a a master's or a doctorate in history, I'd be very convinced because you write that well. <laughs> Thank
1: you. Um, I'm not presently working on any books. I do have um, a couple of ideas for things I would like to spend some some real time on, you know, rabbit holing on, um, but they're just mostly very nichey things. So like, I mean, I kind of want to do like a real culinary history of Germans from Russia and like really trace the roots, like tr- just attempt to scratch the surface of why, um, Americans mostly who are of that descent, like we only have a few foods that we kind of stick to. So anyways, I have like some ideas for things that I would like to write. Um, I don't know if I ever want to do any cookbooks though, because they're grueling to produce and rarely make any money. Um, So we'll see. And I've been having so much fun with writing articles and doing magazine work because then I can just geek out on one thing for a thousand words and then move on to the next thing. And like my ADHD brain can really like hyper focus on one thing at a time and then, you know, flit on to the next thing. And it's really satisfying for me to like become a micro expert in a bunch of different things.
0: So I want to ask you um, the last question that I like to ask people and it's the fun question. Although I hope all the questions are fun. (laughs) If you could create a dinner for up to 10 people living or dead, famous or not, who would you invite? And what would you cook or order in?
1: Oh my gosh. 10 people. That's a big ballpark.
0: Yeah. I mean, it could be less just, I like to kind of create a ballpark just so I'm not limiting it too much.
1: Okay. Oh, it would have to be, um, I would love to, Eat with Anthony Bourdain. I never had oh my a chance God, yeah. to have a meal with him or break bread with him. Um, Mfk Fisher, of course. Ugh. Grand Dame of food writing. Um Lillian Tingle, who is another great um woman of food writing who I've mentioned and just fawn over in my Portland book. She was um the woman who introduced the domestic science program to Portland Public Schools. She was the the Oregonians um cooking columnist for many years. And um, led the charge in developing hygiene protocols for American grocery stores by, um, you know, inspiring American housewives to like step up to the plate and take it into their own hands. So she's a personal hero of mine. Um, I also love Lucy Rose Mallory, who was the, she was the daughter of Rufus Mallory, who founded, I sorry, uh, Rufus Mallory was her husband. Uh, Aaron Rose was her father who established um Roseburg Oregon. But she was this uh I think she had a type of epilepsy that wasn't diagnosed back then. But she was like a psychic and a spiritualist and would have wow. séances in the um the parlor of the hotel that her husband owned. He was a congressman too so um, and she was a vegetarian, lifelong vegetarian. She was oh, one wow. of the yeah, her mother was a Kellogg. So oh, wow, okay. we would just love to like see what she's into. Um probably like proto nuggets and some other weird like vegetarian substitutes. <laughs> um, so that's five people. I would love to have Jimi Hendrix over. Um, I've always had a huge crush on him. Oh, let's see if I can think of any living people who might be listening, who might actually like take me up on this, um, this dream meal um who would I want to hang out I can't think of any other oh Fiona Apple if you're out there if you're listening girl holler at me I will make you anything you want um I would probably except for I'd have to make something separate for my vegetarian guests but I would just cook them a whole pig um no, that's not cool I would make I would make a pot of um humble bean stew and um and biscuits or cornbread and with a nice. hot sauce my nice like smoky beanie, you know, sauce and the the beans just to, because I think that um, a humble pot of bean stew is a real testament to a person's ability to cook. If you can make, you know, peasant food taste really good, then, you know, you've got the chops. Um, I agree. And I would probably make some like salads too. And some kind of fruit galette for dessert or like a little, Pound cake with berry compote or something.
0: That's lovely. You know, whenever I ask this people this question, a lot of times people go right towards heavy stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know if that makes for a good event or a good evening, because then it's like everybody's <laughs> kind of like stuffed. Nobody wants to talk; they just want to sleep.
1: I think, mean, you know, as long as everyone leaves two hours after eating a big bowl of beans, then I think everyone will be fine. But yeah, no one wants to be. Yeah, that's a good them. point. That's super gassy <laughs> dinner party.
0: We'll be passing around beano for everybody. Please partake. <laughs>
1: yeah that would be a very awkward situation yeah
0: well heather it's been wonderful talking to you thank you for um being on the podcast
1: thanks yeah thanks for reaching out it's really nice talking to you too dean
0: i hope you enjoyed that conversation with heather arndt anderson If you haven't read her books yet, I really urge you to. Her book Breakfast is wonderful. Her book on Chilies, A Global History, is wonderful, as well as her book Berries, A Global History. And even if you don't live in Portland or Oregon, her book Portland of Food Biography is wonderful. If you're a biology nerd or a history nerd like I am, or even a mythology nerd because she has stuff in there about that as well, those are all things that you're going to want to check on Um, wonderful books and available on amazon.com. So I want to thank you for being here for the well-seasoned librarian and I bid you a wonderful day. Keep cooking.